Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I am the executive director of Healthcare Voter, but I'm also a cancer survivor that has firsthand experience going through the American medical system. And so we're here to answer your American healthcare and health insurance questions and also talk about larger issues uh, in America that touch on healthcare uh, and answering your questions and helping to educate all of us on the American healthcare system. Our first question today is from Patricia. It wants to know, why is there no opt-out of Medicare Part A or B or reduction in premiums for veterans already covered under VA healthcare? Uh, and to answer that, welcome Diane from Just Care and Social Security. Thanks so much, Laura. It's a really good question because there are people, obviously, who have veterans health care, which can be the best care in the country. It's actually a form of socialized medicine and where you get really integrated care um, if you're um, lucky enough to, to qualify for that coverage. Um, but people who have VA coverage also are entitled to Medicare. Or you haven't worked, but your spouse has worked um, for 10 years, you qualify for free um, Medicare Part A. So um, you don't have to worry about opting out because you're not paying anything for it. Uh, for Part B of Medicare, however, there is a premium. It is voluntary. So you don't actually have to pay it. You can opt out. And some people do. But it's often a mistake because sometimes the VA may not be able to provide the comprehensive coverage you need, or you may want to go out of your area for care and see a particular doctor or use a particular hospital that's not part of the VA system. And in those cases, having Part B of Medicare can be invaluable, but it is a hefty price tag you pay for it, and you absolutely don't have to pay it. The, the trade-off, however, will be that if the VA healthcare system isn't providing you all the care that you need, you may be foregoing your opportunity to have coverage for care from virtually any doctor in the country under Medicare Part B. Thank you, Diane. Our next question is from Mary, who wants to know, uh, many employers are only offering bronze level health plans with employee premiums as high as $1,000 a month for a family plan. Why is that considered affordable? If such plans are not taken by the employee, the ACA premium is not subsidized and a family of three would have to pay around $1,800 a month for a bronze level plan uh, to $2,700 a month for a gold level plan. Uh, are these issues going to be addressed by Congress? Uh, to answer that, welcome Zoid from Health Sherpa. Hello. Um, this is actually a really great and timely question. So what this question is referring to is with the plans through the Affordable Care Act, um, you can be eligible for subsidies or um, premium tax credits, which are paid directly to the insurance company on your behalf to lower the cost of your monthly premium. However, there are certain requirements for being eligible for those. And one of those is that you can't be eligible if you are if you have other qualifying health coverage or you're eligible for other qualifying. And one of those can be a plan from an employer. And to find out if your employer's plan um, um, counts as other qualifying health coverage, there's two things you have to look at. Um, if it provides minimum value, 
um, which refers to essentially about how much it will be paying out in your medical claims. And then um, if it um, is affordable and the way the affordability calculation currently works, this is how the IRS is currently interpreting the guidelines, um, the regulations, is that they only look at how much it costs for the employee only on the plan. So if it costs the employee only $50 a month and they compare that to the household income and that's considered affordable, if the plan is also offered to other family members, even if the price grows up dramatically as soon as you add family members to it, those family members are also considered as having access to affordable health coverage. Um, and this is something that advocates have been talking about for several years now. Um, it's, we were often refer to it as the family glitch um, and it's not really a, a glitch necessarily, um, but that is how the IRS is interpreting that. But this is why it's timely. There is currently a proposed rule um, for the IRS to interpret this differently. And what they would do is have a separate calculation to calculate affordability for the family members. Um, this proposed rule was just in a public comment period. That comment period um, closed early last week. Um, we, we at HealthSherpa submitted our comments in favor of it, as well as having a, a couple clarifying questions we'd like to see addressed in the final rule. Um, but the proposed rule mentioned that um, they anticipate if this goes into effect, it would be for this open enrollment period. So we are anticipating that we will hear about a final rule within the next few months um, before November. So um, yes, this is potentially going to be addressed. And if it is, it could really benefit millions of Americans right now who fall into. Thank you, Zoid. Our next question is from Rob. Um, they are the primary caretaker uh, for their 80-year-old uh, uh, parents who both have serious health issues. Uh, I know Medicaid covers some salary. I'm taking a big hit in my income, but my folks have Medicare. Is there any coverage there or might private insurance cover something? We can't afford a private nurse. Uh, Diane, any thoughts? Sure, yeah. And this is a really big issue. Uh, we are having or in the middle of a long-term care crisis in this country where so many millions of, of individuals and families can't afford long-term care. And unfortunately, as you note, it's only Medicaid that covers long-term care. And in many states, it's not even as comprehensive as we'd like it to be. We're big proponents of Medicare for All because Medicare for All legislation would finally cover long-term care, guarantee it at low cost to every older adult and person with disability in the country. But for the moment, what we have with Medicare only is uh, limited coverage if your parents are homebound, meaning it's difficult for them to leave home without assistance and need skilled nursing care be it like a nurse to come give them an injection daily or physical therapy also counts on an intermittent basis, or um, they might qualify for skilled nursing facility care, but that's also limited in scope and only for people who have been hospitalized first for at least three nights and also who need daily skilled nursing and skilled nursing care under Medicare is only covered for a hundred days. So really uh, you're in a bind if you have Medicare uh, and you need long-term care. My one recommendation, and maybe Zoe, do you have some others, is that um, the Medicaid rules in many states, not every state, but many states, 
Diane, uh, you're breaking up. Could you uh, try that again? Sure. Um, if your income in certain states um, is being spent on health care costs, you might qualify for Medicaid, even though that income is above the eligibility uh, requirement. So let me turn it over to Zoe to see if you have anything more to say since I've been breaking up. And I hope that's helpful. Um, yeah, I think um, what you were saying about if, if you're if you're spending a certain amount, um, Medicaid could cover. Um, and it's also worth looking into some of the other um, benefits that are provided by Medicaid that are not always provided um, by private insurance. So things like non-emergency medical transportation, if you're spending a lot of time um, transporting um, your parents or anyone you're taking care of to and from the doctor, uh, medic most uh, Medicaid is required to cover uh, um, medical. Um, so those are some other things that you can look into as well. And also pay attention to what's happening in Washington, because uh, all through last year, uh, as Congress was working on uh, Build Back Better, there were pieces in that to provide more funding for home and community-based services uh, for families exactly like yours that uh, don't want to uh, use nursing homes and still need uh, help. So that bill passed the House, did not pass the Senate, but there are negotiations happening uh, even still. So it's important to contact your senators, especially uh, you're in Florida, so uh, your senators may not be especially open to hearing this, but... Uh, or no, uh, I'm not sure if you're in Florida. I thought I read you were in Florida. Anyways, wherever you are, uh, make sure you contact your senators. Uh, let them know that this is an issue and that you need more help and that they need to fully fund home and community-based services because Medicaid in many states, uh, even though these services can be provided, there are wait lists, there's not enough funding. Uh, so uh, it's it's important to fully fund this piece of the care infrastructure. Actually, one other thought, Laura. There's also a program called PACE. It's a program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. That's in every state. Different agencies administer the program. But in many areas, the program actually provides supports to people on a sliding scale so that they can age in their homes. Um, so look into the PACE program in your state, wherever you are. Maybe that can provide some help for you in terms of home care services for your. Absolutely. And sometimes there are local community-based services that specific communities have as well. So uh, be sure to check that out and see. Uh, hopefully there is more help available for your family. Our next question is, uh, what are our options right now if we don't have health insurance and want to get covered? And when does open enrollment start up again? Soid? Yeah, so um, we are currently in the special enrollment period, which means typically you need a qualifying life event in order to enroll. Um, they usually relate to loss of coverage, but there are quite a few different ones as well. Um, so if you need to see a list of those, um, there's a list on healthcare.gov. Or if you live in a state that runs their own exchange, meaning you are using your state's own website, like Covered California, CoveredCA.com, um, New York State of Health, those websites, rather than healthcare.gov, they will also have a list. Um, however, there's a few kind of special things going on because, you know, this is a special year. 
Um, so due to the public health emergency, if you've experienced a qualifying life event since January 1st of 2020, but haven't been able to enroll in due, due to the pandemic, you may also still be able to qualify and enroll. For this year, there's also a special enrollment period for folks with income at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Um, so you can look up those numbers, but that's about um, 19,300 or less for a single person, about 26,000 or less for a household of two, and um, a little under 40,000 or less for a household size of four. Um, and then like I said, some states that don't use healthcare.gov, they have their own websites, are going to have different rules. Some of those are actually allowing folks to continue to enroll because of the public health emergency. Washington, D.C. is one of those. Um, they said that the enrollment will go on until the end of the pandemic. Um, and California also has a, a, a special enrollment period if you've been impacted by the pandemic. Um, so if you live in a state that has their own website, um, check out their announcements, their qualifying life events page um, for more information about that. Um, if you're eligible for Medicaid or CHIP, um, you don't need to wait for any sort of enrollment period for that. That is year round. Um, so you can screen to see if you're potentially eligible in a few different places. You can go to healthcare.gov um, on healthsherpa.com. We will also screen for that. Um, and that screening is primarily based on income. If you think you might be eligible based on having a disability um, or there's a few other reasons, um, then I would recommend just going straight to your uh, state Medicaid agency's website. Um, so as for open enrollment period, that will be starting back up on November 1st in most states. Sometimes those states that have their own exchange, they might start it a bit sooner. Um, we haven't heard that yet, but we'll be keeping an eye out on those dates. Um, we're also not sure when the end date will be yet. Um, last year, as you may know, open enrollment was extended past the, the usual December 15th, which is what it had been for the previous few years, and it went all the way to January 15th. We're not sure yet if that will be the case this year, but we are we are certainly hoping so because a lot of folks were able to get enrolled due to that extension. Great. Thank you, Zoid. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest, Dr. Mina Butra uh, from Doctors for America, who will talk about gun violence and healthcare, an issue on all of our minds right now. So welcome, doctor. Hey, thank you so very much. I am incredibly um, honored to be here, especially with this group, because I love that gun violence is... Um, recognized as the public health emergency that it is. Um, and it's really, I think it's on top of mind for everyone. I will tell you that a couple of days ago, um, I overheard my almost 11-year-old quizzing my newly seven-year-old about what to do when a bad guy gets in the school. And she immediately rattled off two hiding places in, the, in her classroom and how she knows how to lock the door from the inside and there's something they put on the bottom of the door and then how to get underneath her desk and be as quiet as possible. And she missed one thing and he was, my son was telling her like what she had messed up and I was almost in tears. Um, because this is elementary school children who this is what they're learning. This is not what they should be learning at school. And this is a public health emergency. Um, in the United States, every day, at least 200 Americans are shot and injured um, with a firearm, the majority of which are assaults, and over 89 people die every year. I mean, every day, sorry, over 89 people every day. Gun violence is now also the number one cause of death among children under the age of 18. 
this is a public health emergency. I mean, we get upset when, and rightfully so, when 20 children are massacred at one time and it happens in one place, but every day is a mass shooting. Every day, 89 people are dying from gun violence. We should be as outraged as we have been for the last couple of weeks every single day because this does not happen anywhere else in the United States. Uh, I mean, everywhere, anywhere else in the world. It just happens in the United States. In Japan, where they have 120 million people, they only had 11 gun-related homicides. We have three times more than that every single day. And in Australia, where they initiated strict gun safety laws, their homicide rates dropped by 59%. Suicide rates dropped by 65%. Uh, you know, I heard this quote that when you bring a child into the world, you are trusting the world to take care of them because you cannot do everything for them every second of their lives. And schools are one of those things. We are not dropping our kids off at schools so that they can be that can be the last time we see them. We should not be teaching them to live in a state of fear. We are teaching them to live in the state of hypervigilance. This is not conducive to learning. So a couple of things, gun laws work. We know they work. Um, a study in Missouri, specifically looking at young adults, looked at when they repealed a permit to purchase, there was a 22% increase in suicide rates among young adults. Lowering the age of concealed carry is associated with an increased about a 30% increased rate of suicides among young adults. Um, and weaker gun laws are associated with anywhere from a 13 to 15% increase in violent crimes. In fact, the 10 states with the weakest gun laws collectively have gun violence that is over two times as high as the 10 states with the strongest gun laws. Um, and guns are simply too easy to obtain in this country. Over 85% of the school shootings occurred where they could trace where the guns are came from, they came from friends, they came from relatives, or they came from their own homes. Um, and there's this myth that we're going to have a good guy with a gun that is a myth. In places with right to carry laws, they have this 15% higher violent crimes. It does not decrease crime in those places. But specifically thinking about the impact in healthcare, the morbidity associated with gun violence, let's, you know, for a moment, if we can not think about the the, the people who die every day, but gun violence leads to about 19 times more years lost to disability in America than other countries. There are over 30, 311,000 students now who have been exposed to gun violence. They have not died. They have just been exposed to gun violence. There have been 331 school shootings since Columbine. We are averaging over 10 school shootings a year since Columbine. Those survivors of children, they are just as hurt. They have increased levels of PTSD. They have increased levels of anxiety, depression, mental health issues. And we are seeing, I, I heard one statistic that we now have more children with PTSD this year than we have veterans. Additionally, people who survive gun violence have long-term injuries. And you were talking about getting home health care and those sort of things. In states that have not expanded Medicaid, access to long-term physical and occupational therapy, nursing care, things like wheelchairs, they're just not covered. And in fact, without the ACA and Medicaid, half of gunshot victims in this country would be uninsured. There was a time when trauma centers and surgical staff would actually go to garage sales to get equipment for their patients. Um, so 
I want to give kudos to everyone who's been on the front lines of conducting the research on gun regulations and gun violence, the parents and survivors who are doing something I can't even imagine myself doing to continue to advocate through their pain. And folks like Senator Chris Murphy, who's never stopped begging for our, you know, our senators and our representatives and 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 everyone who represents people from you know, local all the way up to federal to come together. And yes, there is a bipartisan bill that um, appears to have been agreed upon in the Senate. You can argue it doesn't do enough, um, but it is the first bipartisan agreement in over 30 years um, towards gun regulation. And it does include increasing red flag laws, funding for mental health and school safety, protecting against partner violence, the first ever federal law against gun trafficking and increased background checks for under 21 buyers. Um, but at the end of the day, we can't stop advocating because while this is great progress and yes, it will save lives, it is not enough. It is simply not enough. And my children and I and my students marched in the March for Our Lives this past weekend, which very sadly was called March for Our Lives again, because these are the same Parkland um, you know, survivors who are doing this again because we continue to have this, these, these school shootings. And, and we will continue to have this problem and we are going to be raising generations of, of children who are traumatized and living with this. This will be a health problem for us until we can stop this in its roots. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Butra. So uh, do you have any thoughts on, uh, for, for decades, the CDC was not allowed to do gun violence research, but that recently has been lifted, I understand. So yes. are we going to have more research soon? Yes. In fact, you're absolutely correct. There was a, for a long time, there was legislation passed that limited or prohibited gun violence research. And this was because the NRA is a big funder. I always tell people, vote for the folks who have an F in the NRA books. You want the failing people. Those are the, the those are the ones you want. Um, and, and, and there was a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Doug Weeb at the University of Pennsylvania is probably one of the few people in an academic center who had gotten one of these very limited grants. But we were looking at private places like the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins um, and, and other places like that that were doing this research. We are going to see more work coming out. And this is important because there are these myths that, you know, more guns or the good guy with the gun or arming teachers. By the way, I'm a teacher. I tripped over. Over the cord to the like setup in the classroom just today, and you should never ever let me anywhere near a firearm. I can tell you that right now. Um, but we need more of that research because we have to convince these people not we shouldn't have to because you just have to look at the rest of the world. And, and the rest of the world does not have less mental health problems than we do. The, less, the rest of the world does not watch less video games or television. That is not the problem. The difference is the access to guns that we, that we have here. And can you tell me uh, more about what doctors are doing about gun violence? Maybe talk about uh, This Is Our Lane. Um, so this is our lane came from, I, I don't remember exactly, maybe it was Parkland. I don't remember exactly which one of these um, uh, school shootings. And I, I, I know members of the NRA and, and people who were affiliated with the NRA were telling doctors to stay in our lane. When we were showing pictures of, 
you know, the, the children's clothes in an operating room. We were talking about our patients and what was happening. And um, my sign, you know, said, it, it said, this is our lane. This is what we do all the time. I work at a level one trauma center. And I will tell you that our trauma surgeons will tell you that they can fix almost everything except a gunshot. That is the injury that is the hardest one, the one that they almost never can reverse and save someone's life. Um, and we're getting tired of this. We are truly getting tired of this. And it's even it's even struck closer to home now because we've had, I think in the last year or two, two shootings in hospitals, a place where we would hope that people would not bring their guns. Um, they had to put stickers on all the doors to our hospital saying no firearms. And we still have people who come in with firearms. Um, this is, it, it, so this is our lane is just more and more of us doctors speaking up and saying this is a public health emergency. This is not just random acts of violence. I mean, we hear about the big shootings. We hear about the school shootings. They break our hearts. But again, every day is a mass shooting in this country. Every day is a mass shooting. And we need more public health officials. We need more of the doctors, pediatricians saying, no, this this is the facts. Just like we had to speak up for vaccines and, and public health, seatbelts, all of these other things, car seats. We need to speak up for this as well um, to convince people this is not political. Uh, guns kill everyone. A child is a child. A parent who's lost their child, I don't care who they are, my heart breaks for them. This is a public health emergency. And especially when it becomes the number one cause of death for our children, this is not acceptable. This is just not acceptable. And Zoe, do you had a question? Yeah. Do you know if there has been any research or will be on the impacts of this? Not to the you know direct survivors of gun violence, but just children in general um, in America. You know, I'm thinking like, you know, I'm in my late twenties now. When I was maybe like five or six, we had a lockdown, but it was because there was a loose bear <laughs> a couple miles away. And so when I was that young, in my mind, lockdowns were were for bears. <laughs> and right. you know, I was a little bit older when I realized you know people could come with a gun. But I can imagine a five year old having that reality of what could happen and then not growing up with some sort of, you know, anxiety or trauma from that. I, there has already been increasing research looking at this because, um, and these are even um, the Columbine who are now adults, right? And there was a fascinating series of interviews that have been interviewing these parents because when they have, they have children now, think about this, they have children that they have to send to school. Um, and with the school shooting, they have to talk to their children. And what's fascinating, what's interesting is how everyone deals with it a little differently. Some of the folk, everyone talks about it. Some of these parents now own guns themselves because they just don't feel safe. They don't believe that our country will not have guns or will have appropriate gun control. Um, there are children who report, or young adults report they can't handle 4th of July. They have to go and hide because the firecrackers remind them of these sort of things. There are children who say they went through all of high school constantly looking at everyone who looked suspicious or looked depressed or looked angry and being afraid. And now they live in this state of hypervigilance where they're constantly looking around and trying to figure out who might have a gun or who might do something because this was what they, what they experienced or what they were, even if they didn't have gun violence, the lockdowns, 
the the shooter drills, the drills have become so frightening that you have children who start to cry when they're told they're going to have a shooter drill because it's it's um, a response to this idea that they are going to have to go through this again. Uh, so there have definitely been a lot of descriptive work, and I think as we move forward, there will be increasing. There has to be because this will be a significant cause of mental health issues for. Um, for children who are growing up, regardless of whether they actually encountered a shooter or not. And a different way of looking at the world, you know, we think we worried about how COVID would do this with children not having those same normal relationships in their formative years because we were all separated and school was on Zoom. I think we're seeing a much deeper, much longer standing, like, you know, state of fear um, instead of learning at school. Schools are not safe places and that shouldn't be what we're teaching teachers or students. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Mina, and for all of our panelists. Uh, thank you for listening to Care Talk. Please keep asking your questions and we will get you answers in future shows. And just to comment on the legislation, the, the Senate has agreed in principle to a compromise on gun safety, but until there are votes, uh, until there is a, a bill signed into law, right now it is just talk. So if you feel strongly about this issue and or anything else we've covered today, contact your senators, contact your representative, uh, and uh, vote like your life depends on it. Thank you for listening to Care Talk. <laughs>